Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At bluenile.com, you can design a one of a kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Like if it works for someone to think that they have a true self that they have to discover, like bully for you, but I think that's nonsense. There's no such thing as a true self. Like we're always fictions that we create for ourselves and others. So that gives you a different way of thinking, like what's a better fiction? So this is not my true self. This is a better fiction that I just so much would rather play um, than, you know, cosplaying masculinity like I did for years. Sometimes pretty well, frankly, but it was just never, the suit never fit, like Mm -hmm. literally. (laughs) I'm Jordan Kistner author of the essay collection Thin Places. And this is Thresholds, a weekly series of conversations with writers and artists about moments of epiphany or transformation that changed their lives and their work. A moment that they stepped across, like a threshold, into something new. And the way that experience changed everything they wrote afterward. Hey, Thresholds listeners. Happy 2024. Uh, It's been a while since we were here in the studio, and it's good to be back. After some changes with our home network last spring, we decided to take a step back and figure out what a sustainable future for this project would look like. And we dreamed up some new ideas, and now we are here and re-energized with new episodes and a few changes and announcements that I want to share with you. The first is that after three years with LitHub, Thresholds is now going to be hosted by Acast, a new home we're feeling really good about. If you subscribed to Thresholds before, you don't need to do anything. You'll still get new episodes in your feed. Like before, we're going to release five or six episode seasons, but now we're going to air every other week. That's because of the biggest, most exciting change, which is that we've launched the digital publication arm of Thresholds in the form of a newsletter, which will come to readers in their email a few times a month. I'm so thrilled about this new arm of Thresholds. Readers will get early alerts about new episodes, mini essays and interviews that aren't on the podcast, bonus audio and extracts from our archives. If that sounds like it's up your alley, go subscribe now through our website. This is thresholds.com. 
Okay, one last announcement, which will bring me to today's guest. We're starting an ongoing collaboration with our friends at Pioneer Works, an artist and scientist-led cultural center in Red Hook, Brooklyn. They host everything from visual art to music to food to astrophysics. And on the second Sunday of every month, they host a day of programming and open artist studios called Second Sundays. In November, we joined Second Sundays to do a live Thresholds recording in collaboration with Pioneer Works' publication, Broadcast. A few times a year, we're going to pop back up over there to do live thresholds. New Yorkers will be able to see us live. We'll air the audio here on the podcast afterward, and Pioneer Works will publish the written interview on broadcast. We're huge fans of them, and we're so happy to be collaborating with Pioneer Works this way. Today, we're bringing you the first of these, a conversation with Mackenzie Wark, who's a scholar, essayist, novelist, prolific tweeter or user of X, I guess now, and raver who lives, works, and dances in New York. Originally from Australia, she had a prominent career as an academic and public intellectual there before moving in her 40s to New York. Her scholarly work includes books on media theory like Hacker Manifesto, Gamer Theory, and work on the Situationist International. But Wark is known for mixing and mingling forms. She's also the author of an autofiction work, which she calls her porn novel, Reverse Cowgirl, a speculative memoir of her relationship with Kathy Acker called Philosophy for Spiders, and many other experimental works. In 2017, Wark began her gender transition, which also marked a major change in her writing life. Unable to write as much as she usually had, she began dancing instead, entering the queer and trans rave scene here in New York. Last year, she published two books that, to her, marked her return to a prolific writing career. The first is a first-person essay called Raving, which is both theory and personal account of being a trans woman in her 60s at New York Queer Raves. The second is a memoir in the form of letters called Love and Money, Sex and Death. We talked about how both these books came to be, about her transition and the fallow writing period that accompanied it, about what Wart calls the rave continuum, and lots more. One quick note, there was an error with the live recording during our conversation, and so the audio, especially my end of the conversation, isn't as clear as usual. Thanks for bearing with us, and we'll be back to our normal crystal clear sound in the next episode. Here's Mackenzie Wark. Well, I'm, my name is Mackenzie Wark. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm a writer, originally from Australia, but I've lived in New York for 23 years. The most recent book is Love and Money, Sex and Death. That's what it's about. That's Which all you need out- to know. In uh, yeah, about that. Yeah, Mm -hmm. October, I think. Yeah, Mm -hmm. something like that. Mm -hmm. And I had two books out this year. The other one's raving. Mm -hmm. Congratulations on them both. Thank you. Really beautiful. I feel like they're a really beautiful diptych (laughs) together. Um, And I want to talk about them each separately and together. But I thought I would start us in a place where I normally start these conversations for thresholds, which is just with the question that I emailed to you now however however many days ago, which is, can you tell me about a threshold that you've encountered in your life that has shown up in or shaped your work somehow? Threshold being a term that we can interpret as widely and weirdly as, as you want to. I mean, the uh, obvious one to do in a way is transition. You know, I kind of just crossed a gender threshold or really like it's more of a threshold of the sex of the body Mm because I decided it was time to change it and with with chemical and physical means Mm -hmm. so yeah I think it was a threshold I was on for a very long time before like finally stepping over it yeah in my 50s I mean I have a 
uh, date that I celebrate um, that's in my calendar, like on infinite repeats over a year, I remember. Like, but it's a little arbitrary, the date that I picked, you know, because it took it, you know, it's it's sort of like a threshold where you don't really know where the beginning and ending is kind of thing. You know, you know you're stepping into the 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 thresh part, but you know, we don't know where the <laughs> hole comes at the end, you know. Right, right, right. Or where the hole lets you go. If ever. Yeah. yeah. You know, it was something I wanted to write about for a long time, but I had to actually come out for that to be possible. Like, I have all of these... Um, I was trying to write Love and Money, Sex and Death for like 20 years, mm-hmm. you know, and it didn't work until I came out, you mm-hmm. know. Um, so, I, it, yeah, like the, this was versions of selves that were buried in writing that never saw the light of day or that I occasionally try to get published and was always rejected, uh, which is probably just as well. <laughs> Editors sometimes make very good decisions when they refuse to let you mis- make your mistakes in public, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but then after it came out, then I I, I wrote um, Reverse Cowgirl before I went on hormones because mm-hmm. I figured it might mess with my ability to write, mm-hmm. which it really did for mm-hmm. years. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's sort of like a bookmark or a bookend book that's the end of a previous life. Right. And it's three years where I couldn't really write. And then raving just happened very quickly. Um and that was sort of the new voice in a way. Yeah. I wanted to ask you about that period where you were struggling to write and then that sort of ending in the the rush of, of raving. Um, did it feel to you, you were worried in advance that you were going to have trouble writing? Yeah. You know, well, I, you know, I had elders. I talked to people about, you know, and most humans have gone through puberty and remembered it as a period of like emotional instability. Mm-hmm. And it's like, well, I was going to do that again, mm-hmm. basically. Um, but where it's not expected and there aren't, you know, there's, there's no affordances for an adult to be having puberty-level emotional meltdowns, you know. <laughs> it's just not. Um, and I just feel like writing is a bit of a finely tuned instrument and it was going to uh, go out of tune in a sense. Um, and it really did, yeah. Like for three years I really couldn't get anything done. I mean, I did commissioned articles, but that's like, you know, my second day job right. kind of stuff, but the right. real work wasn't happening. And then uh, I have a bit of a tendency to mania, and I've learned to keep this in check by, in that state, not involving other people or signing contracts. Um, but I kind of let myself go with raving. I was just asked if I could do that quickly. And I just said, yes, I can do a book in six weeks, you know. Um, and that um, being like pushed into that, Sort of, it finally kind of came, you know. And I had the, I had something to to write about and with and through, and mm-hmm. yeah, that's when I came back. And and then that enabled love, money, sex, and death, you know, right? In a way too, right? It's like an unstoppering or something. Yeah, yeah. Um, in the period when it was when you were having trouble writing, did it feel like there was something that you wanted to be? sort of working with that writing was not able to touch at that point? Or was it that you felt like you didn't have access to writing in the way that you had before? Um, I mean, I'm always writing, but it was just bad, you know, and there's just files and files of like failed projects and trying different voices and different approaches and stuff. And um, I'm one of those people who writes very, very fluidly, and it's all in the editing. And, mm-hmm. you know, people think I write too much. You should see how much you don't see, you know. Uh, so, yeah, it was nothing was coming out of that. So I was just going dancing all the time, you know. Sort of thought, fucking, I'll just, you know, 
I'm, I'm enjoying being in my body and, and dancing helps in a lot yeah. of ways. Uh, so raving came about because I was asked if I contribute to the series practices mm. that Margaret Grebowitz was editing for Duke and someone had dropped out. So Margaret was like, can you do something, you know, on short notice? And I'm like, yeah, let's go be raving because that's all I do. Mm-hmm. And Margaret's like, oh, I'm not sure there's a book in that, you know, or if it fits. And I sent her a sample and she's like, oh, yeah, okay, great. That's it's on, you know, because <laughs> like, there's nothing else I can write about. It's the only practice I had. Yeah, you know? yeah. that's all I was doing. Yeah, I mean, and you write about like the the period that is in raving is sort of a a homecoming back to raving after being away from it for years, um, and I'm wondering if you can just like tell tell me a little bit about what it felt like to come to come back into that space that's another threshold uh-huh. um the the venue is now gone so i'll name it it was a place called muse which was a circus school um it's not far from where nowadays is mm-hmm. uh, i just had this memory of like crossing the threshold it's even in the book yes i, I marked it it's, yeah it's the way you write about it is yeah is really beautiful. Hey, it's Jordan. I'm actually going to read a little bit from the passage we're talking about here because I I think it's really beautiful. It's from the second chapter of Raving called Xenoeuphoria. Q sashays straight past the waiting line with a slender finger in the air and announces politely and with a confidence I now know she doesn't always feel that we are on the list. Door bitch, cool yet respectful, clocks us, holds us back for a moment. An eager crowd forms up behind us. How many are you? She asks. Three. She ushers just the three of us through the door into the embrace of the sound, and the threshold closes behind us. It was Q who led me back through the threshold into the rave continuum, where every rave seems to join and fold into every other. It was she who got me dancing again. We met on trans Twitter, then IRL at my regular coffee shop. Somewhere during that long conversation, I mentioned to Q how before transition, dancing was one of the few times this body felt at home, particularly if the music was techno. My theory being that it's a music, or more like a sonic technology, made for aliens. Being made for aliens, it's a sound in which no human body is more welcome than any other. Yeah, and I'm I'm with, uh, I think it's Q and mm-hmm. Z, you know, everybody's just got initials in the book, and... Um, Q just sort of like brazens the door, you know, we're on the list, you know, <laughs> as a party where trans girls are supposed to be free. Mm-hmm. And that's sort of always a little bit iffy if that's going to be honored. And, uh, the door person who I've since come to know a little bit, um, who is very tough, but fair was like, all right, you know, and then, and then we're through and, and you sort of cross into a different space, you mm-hmm. know, a space that operates with different conventions. Mm-hmm. And that was the first time you had gone back to a rave. Yeah, yeah. The first one was a muse. Yeah. Right. I can also name the party now that it's ended. It was Unter. Oh, um, okay. Like, I don't talk about the stuff that's ongoing in the right. book to keep it a little on the DL, but that venue's gone and that party's officially over. Yeah. What did it feel like? I mean, you write about it beautifully, but I, I want to mm-hmm. talk with you about it too, about what it felt like to be embodied in that space in a in a different body than was the one you had the last time that you were at a rave yeah it was um first a little overwhelming and it took me a while to uh get comfortable again and um i always loved dancing with other people used to i was very sensitive about being bugged by other people around me Mm -hmm. 
I now just so don't care, you know, I was getting knocked over this morning. I'm like, all right, <laughs> I'll bounce back. Um, yeah, it took a, and this common experience with ravers is it can take a good hour or even, you know, three to get into the, the zone of it. And mm-hmm. it did take most of that morning mm-hmm. uh, to sort of like physically like grind the edges of the sharp edges of subjectivity off and just be a body mm-hmm. and find one that I liked, like finally. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, I like her. Yeah, it's good. It feels good, you know. So, find a body that you yeah, liked? Yeah, yeah. It's like, oh, I like it now. Um, dancing always helped with that, but, um, yeah, it just got so much better. Did you know at that point that it was going to need to be a new practice for you? Yeah, I really, you know, like, um, I left that one and it was like, you know, 7.30 in the morning and I got home. Um, people, like, clocked me, like, coming off the subway. <laughs> I wore wore a Rick Owens dress, which was a, like bad idea because it got all filthy, you know. Um, and I'm like, oh, I got to do this again. This is just fucking great, you know. So yeah, unfortunately, my trans mom was also my rave mom, you know, and she's kind of hardcore and well connected. And uh, and it's like, all right, so that's where we're going next week, and you should be in this this group chat. And you know, like, yeah, after a while, I just knew where to go, you know. I also co-curate a series called Writing and Raving, and we'll do an edited collection of that. So how do we add, you know, like those little ripples of spaces to document, critique, theorize, um, check the tone in writing? So, yeah, how, how do we sort of build the culture a little bit? Um, it's sort of a project that, I, that with with this, you know, like I still I'm still doing the field work. I didn't stop, even though the book's been out, you know, <laughs> for months. Sure. Um, but I also wanted it to be like a little gift to that world that was so helpful for me, mm-hmm. um, and is is connected to these other things of um, curating other writers and younger writers and, and finding spaces to um, add on to the culture around it as well. Yeah, it seems like. The rave is such a fertile space for theory and for queer theory because, at least as you write it, it's, it is this space that is just full of portals, whether it is music as a portal, drugs as a portal, movement as a portal. That they're, like I was so amazed by um, the term, which was new to me, which is the rave continuum, mm. right? That like every rave can sort of achieve access to the rave continuum, which is like the thing, the, the rave that is outside time that like every rave might touch. I was hoping you could talk a little bit about that idea and the almost like the technical formal choices you made trying to kind of touch or bring us to the rave continuum in the, in the writing mm. in the book. Yeah, and I wanted the book not to be a sort of description or representation of the world, but sort of extruding out of it a little mm-hmm. bit, have a sort of different relation to it. And I wanted to sort of freshen the language up a little bit. And in a lot of the interviews, like, you know, after the book came out, I kept getting asked the same stuff. And it's like, so the rave is utopia. No. 
The rave is transcendent. Say, no. You specifically say it's not utopia. It's not. Yeah. It's not utopia. It's not transcendent. It's not resistance. Like, we've we tried all these languages and it didn't really help. Mm-hmm. So... Uh, there's even a glossary in the back, which is a little bit comic. It's mm-hmm. meant to be excessive and ridiculous. <laughs> there's like 30 made-up terms for stuff, some which I sourced from the community too. Mm-hmm. Um, like a popular thing in the book is the names for types you encounter on the dance floor. Like there's the punishers, punishers right. who you think that they're having a good time has to be your expense, and there's co-workers who just really tie one on so they have a good story for the water cooler on Monday. You know, so I sourced this from people in that world, and I've tried to sort of acknowledge that uh, in the book, you know. But then some of the language is, is coming from actually kind of a critique of queer theory and theories of queer time to sort of do that differently. How is transgender experience actually not assimilable in queer thinking? Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, the idea of Rave Continuum that there's uh, – uh, a stream of time that every good party is part of. Mm-hmm. Um, there's also a sort of a writing conceit because I've put scenes that happen at different parties together at the same one. Mm. Um, a little bit of um, obfuscation and, you know, keep th- keeping things a little bit hidden. Um, and also so I could just cut to the good stories, you know. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like you don't – well, it would be kind of a nice um, – um, conceptual writing thing to like write the boring part of the party yeah, that's the whole, like, <laughs> boredom of raving and yeah then the, yeah, that's, yeah but it's a totally different project yeah yeah like, be, be like cool. a kenny goldsmith kind of a book you right. know i step to the right and i step to the left and i step to the right and i step to the left the person on the left is annoying me and i step to the right and i step to the yeah it was just going like the that for 100 pages yeah <laughs> that, i like that it that could be a thing i like it yeah 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 so rave continuum is is this um other time you get into when sideways time opens up. And to me, that's a way of thinking about why it's interesting as an experience of temporality, this mm-hmm. feeling of time sort of delating out sideways rather than there was a whole uh, version of techno that's future-oriented. Um, there's other theories of sort of queer time as um, – you know, like an edit in temporality. I was just trying, like, let's do it differently. Like, and let's start with the experience uh, of trans people on the dance floor mm-hmm. and why we gather there. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so that's that's what's centered. How was the experience of writing and writing fast after a couple of years of feeling like you maybe were writing, but it didn't feel like it was hitting? And there's the way this was a subset of a common experience is um, the the thing that takes the longest for me is to find the form of the book and it's sort of distinctive for each one although some have been a little similar but there's always like what are the constraints what's the tone what's the um how is it chunked out um what genre does it talk you know does it play with um and that usually that takes forever Mm-hmm. to figure that out. And then once I've got that, the writing's really quick. Mm-hmm. You know, like the writing's really quite easy. Mm-hmm. Um, the rewriting will take forever. But, you know, once I've figured those formal things out, mm-hmm. and once I figured out love, money, sex, and death was not just letters but those ones, then the rest of it came really easily. Yeah. yeah. I wanted to ask you about that. What was what did the epistolary allow that that needed to be? That you that you needed for this book. I wanted to write in the letter form 
for years, like decades, mm-hmm. I've tried to write like that. Um, and it's sort of like a minor form in literature compared to first person or third person. Sure. It's less second person. It's the dominant form of pop songs. And so we were hearing everything, you know, like hip hop's an interesting example of which went to first person uh, and, and is sort of telling, you know, heroic tales in first person. But mm-hmm. second person is this very common form of address. And originally it was 12 letters and um, my editor, Leo Hollis, was just, look, the ones um, that get too abstract don't work. And so I sort of dropped three that were in process. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's like, oh, okay, so it's essentially nine letters and it's three groups of three. And mm-hmm. that's mothers, lovers, and others. Mm-hmm. And then it's going to have a cover letter at the beginning. To the, to the young self. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That came later. I, I, the framing device came later. But it was like, all right, so that's the form of it. And then... Why those three? Mothers, lovers, and others? Um, it's sort of a book about... And the second person address is address. It's written back to um, actual or um, conceptual others that made me. Mm-hmm. And so it's... Um, I got this from Audrey Lord, yeah? Mm-hmm. Like, Zami's all about you know, mothers, basically, mm-hmm. um, in, but, but in a very broad sense of the word. Um, so, yeah, I, I wanted to address right back to who had made me, in a sense, mm-hmm. uh, although that takes a sort of abstract turn in the last third of the book. Yeah. I, I loved um, – there's a moment in the second letter, which is to your mother mm. – um, and forgive me, I'm going to, I'm going to quote it back to you. <laughs> um, when I started transition and went on hormones, the past all came back to me, came out of its nothingness, all the loss, all the pain, and with it, an understanding of this compulsion to write this refuge in writing. When I am writing, I am always writing to you, your mother. Right. Um, and I wanted to ask, was that a, a moment, this uh, this idea of like the rush, the past rushing back to you. Did that happen on a on a day, or was it sort of more of a, a slow rushing in writing? Oh God, that still happens. It's um, <laughs> and it's sort of uh, I don't know how, but it did seem to be related to you know, like you run your entire body and nervous system and brain on different hormones. You know, like, and particularly it starts to do it late when you've got a lot of memories of stuff. Like, it really felt like it reorganized that. And I don't have a, you know, endocrinological explanation for that. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, because my, my mother died when I was six mm-hmm. and I thought I'd, like, dealt with that mm-hmm. in some way. And, it, like, transition has ripped the scab off the whole thing, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was in therapy at the time and I'd just be, like, bawling for the 49 minutes or whatever about it. And it's like, I thought I'd settled all this in my life Mm -hmm. it it all came undone Mm -hmm. um and then relationship to past lovers and like yeah it it sort of was this whole yeah re um settling the my own past so Mm -hmm. like writing to some of those figures sort of made made sense starting with my mother and it's a bit of a conceit like i found this postcard that she wrote me when i was very little that i forgot i had which Mm -hmm. is also weird um, and so it's like, oh, I'm, I've been writing back 
Like I never got to write back when I was little, so I I'm sort of feel like I'm doing that all the time. Mm-hmm. And it's a story I tell myself that makes sense of how I became a writer. Mm-hmm. You said earlier, and it's it's in the book too, that this was a book you had been trying to write for a long time. You had the title of this book yeah. decades ago. What What was the essence of this book that you had or were attempting even back then that couldn't find its find its form nice not, not only did i have the idea for this book i had a contract for it with verso <laughs> <laughs> in like 92 or something uh-huh. and i kind of mentioned this at some point they're like there's no historical memory like no one will know that you took that advance and never <laughs> delivered the book you know it's like <laughs> um and it's uh the four titles are really important to me mm-hmm. um and getting the title right is a whole thing and I just thought the title was right Uh, and it was important to be love and money sex and death so it's putting those specific four things together yeah tell Uh, me why I just want to pause on that for a second tell me more about that um there's a way in which uh love and money are relational um sex and death are states so it's it's, and, and so the, hence they have to be in that order too. Mm-hmm. Uh, love and money is, is um, almost a dialectical difference of how, how the world can relate. Mm-hmm. Um, and sex right. and death is these liminal, liminal states of otherness, one of which is final and the other of which is not. So they have different qualities. Right. The states, yeah. Yeah. And so there's, there's, so, there's less sex in this one than in Reverse Cowgirl, but there's enough, I think, to justify the title. <laughs> Sure, sure, sure. And uh, the so the the book, like what wasn't there in the in the early nineties that then became came into came into focus. I mean, I wasn't there. I hadn't sort of fabricated the voice that could write it. Um, Yeah, and like some of these projects are very long range and. Some work and some don't. I have so many failed projects like folders and folders and things that crashed and burned. But I just really wanted this one mm-hmm. to work. But in retrospect, uh, transition made it possible. Like it wasn't. I had to settle a set of other things first before it could be before it could be a book. Mm-hmm. And also, you know, like I also had to not write it right away. Um, Morgan M. Page, who is, you know, like trans godmother to us all, whether she wants to be or not, uh, has two rules. One is never speak ill of other trans women in public. And the other is wait five years before Mm. you shoot your mouth off about all this. Um, And I sort of cheated on that one a little bit. But, um, yeah, I felt it's five years. I kind of, um, the, you know, really crazy emotional period where I was crying in coffee shops for hours and stuff is over. <laughs> I kind of know who I am now. Mm-hmm. Um, and like this voice has come through. Yeah, so. yeah. And and it's the thing, you know, speaking of other trans writers um, that I learned from Tori Peters, it's like the moment of transition is just a moment in your life. You have to live it the rest of your fucking life. As a transsexual, like how do you do that? You know, so that's actually more, since people are interested in the transition bit, um, as like spectators of it, but we have to live like this for as long as we've got. And uh, helping each other do that is sort of like more 
um, difficult in a way than helping people through the actual, you know, roughly 18 months of hormonal transition. Yeah, you write something that that I thought was just so beautifully articulated about how most um, trans memoirs are supposed to, you're supposed to have sort of like asserted a final and complete self in order to have begun the story and then end the story. There's There's got to be a kind of a finality of embodiment and finality of internal self um, as like a, a barrier to entry for the form at all. And that that's something that you have really wanted to actively resist, understandably so, because the idea of denying someone ongoingness um, in order to be able to tell their own story is such a paradox, such a contradiction in terms. And there's... Um, so my, I was really taken, forgive me, I'm going to do it one more time. I'm going to quote you back to you. Um, but there was a, a part on near the end, it's in the final, um, the final essay in the memoir um, that goes, the genre of a book of a body is a musical art, a time-based work of improvisation upon the given. You don't have to keep playing the same old tune. You can modify the form of man, memoir, essay, woman, academic monograph. You don't have to break a form. Indeed, there's something coercive about that, the bad side of modernism. You can play with it instead. Play with the forms as given until they expand our possibilities and meet our needs. Um, thank you for writing that. I love that so much. Oh, thank you. It's, a, it's just such an incredibly expansive and lovely idea both about personhood and embodiment but also about genre and thinking and writing and work um and i was wondering if you had a sort of a thing you were reaching for in that spirit with this memoir as you were writing it the kind of playing playing with as opposed to breaking form yeah it's and i, and I was always very attracted to very iconoclastic avant-garde modernism, but I don't do it. And I was like, why? <laughs> it's like, oh, yeah, you don't have to break the form, you know, but there's a thing to learn from the breaking of it. Mm-hmm. Um, like a sort of more gentle relationship to it. Uh, less masculine one, too. Like a lot of the uh, the big swinging dicks of modernism always wanted to, you know, like break shit. <laughs> yeah. And it's always like we're in the background putting the pieces together. Like Le- <laughs> Leonora Carrington putting bits of surrealism back together so you can actually like feel it and think it and all that, you know. <laughs> so, yeah. And I, I was sort of writing, um, and it, like if it works for someone to think that they have a true self that they have to discover, like bully for you, but I think that's nonsense. There's no such thing as a true self. Like we're always fictions that we create for ourselves and others. So that gives you a different way of thinking, like what's a better fiction? Mm-hmm. Um, so this is not my true self. This is a better fiction that I just so much would rather play mm-hmm. um, than, you know, cosplaying masculinity like I did for years. Mm-hmm. And like sometimes pretty well, frankly, but it was just never, the suit never fit, like mm-hmm. literally. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, it's sort of like um, an art of both life and uh, an art of uh, art, you mm-hmm. know, is to sort of phrase it in terms of that improvised, you know, play with the given. And it's it's not, you can be anything, like that's actually not really true. Like mm-hmm. there's constraints and art's better if you work with constraints anyway. Mm-hmm. 
and it's better if you try to work with constraints of the kind of body you have, kind of health you have, kind of ability you have or disability. Like you work with that um, and see that as things that can be affirmed rather than entirely in the negative. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so I just sort of felt I was finally um, able to frame kind of the aesthetics and the politics and the everyday in the same book. You mm-hmm. know, like I've sort of done bits of that in different places and in the last few books have actually sort of come together, sometimes in the same sentence. And uh, I can't like my recent books. <laughs> I'll start hating them pretty soon because I'll have to do something different. But yeah, that's where I, that's where I got to this, at this point. this play that you're referencing in Love and Money, Sex and Death, this like playing and pushing with form, what is that? How is that sitting with you in the rest of your life right now? Um, I had to play with the form of my own life quite a bit mm-hmm. when I transitioned. Um, it affected all of my relationships and my teaching persona had to be completely reimagined and rethought. Uh, who I am when I walk down the street is different. Mm-hmm. So um, to not be too self-conscious of that in a bad way, mm-hmm. to be anxious about it, but to think of it a little bit playfully um, within the margin of safety. And it's like an older trans woman who's also white and kind of middle class, so I get a much wider window of safety mm-hmm. than most of my sisters do, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but it's like, well, great. I'm not going to beat myself up about that. I'm going to use that uh, to figure out how uh, all of those are forms that one sort of takes for granted a little bit. And you do want to get the everyday to not be too much of a burden or be too <laughs> self-conscious, but mm-hmm. to just sort of nudge it a little bit. Mm-hmm. And to think that way about both life and art, you know, it's like, oh, let's take a form. Let's take uh, the epistle. Mm-hmm. It's got very, very long history and super interesting people have tried it for different reasons. Uh, Viktor Shlovsky's book, Zoo, for example, um, which is called Letters Not About Love. Mm-hmm. You know, Elsa Trelay said, yes, you can write to me, but don't write about your crush on me. <laughs> and so he sort of circles around it, you know. Um, so, ah, what is it about that form, you know, and how can it – why do so many trans people write in the second person? Like, that struck me as interesting. There's a bunch of them. Um, so I want to – then also the letters connect to those ones that are in dialogue with those. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so how, yeah, how do you take a form? Like, what's a theory book? Uh, what's a theory book independently of the way American complet, you know, elite grad schools made it into something else, you know, like they made it into something I didn't quite recognize. So how do we get it back to what Roland Barthes was doing or what Paul Rulio was doing? Let's get it back to that, you know? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's like play with play with form to sort of take it and you just like flip it around a little bit and you tease it a little bit. Yeah. 
I'm having a year of no new projects, so these, you know, like... Tell me about that. Yeah, I, um, uh, my whole life I was a U-hauler, like I've spent only a few months in my entire life not in a relationship, <laughs> and I've also always had a relationship with a project. So it's like, oh, I should, and I was forced to have a pause and be by myself <laughs> um, uh, in my personal life, mm-hmm. you know, like a couple of years ago. Uh, and I'm like, I should just intentionally do that um, with the work. Like, I'm not going to sign a contract um, or, you know, like formulate a thing. I'll just fuck around for a bit and find out, you know. Um, that's hard for me, you know. It's sort of I'm just one of those people who needs to be working on something, or I feel like I exist. Why? What? What provoked you to make that decision right now? Um, that 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 sounds hard. Yeah, it was getting a little crazy doing two books in a year. You know, like it's sort of just got to slow my roll. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's short books, and the anglophone world's a little. Uh, obsessed with the book as this big production you do once every five years sort of thing. And mm-hmm. uh, other literary cultures aren't always like that. There's a version of French letters where people do quick, short things. Um, Herb Guibert, writer I admire, just basically did a book every year for years, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're like progress reports. You know, well, Throbbing Bristle did like second annual report. It was one of their albums and you could imagine a whole series, you know. I love uh, that. Yeah, but I felt, let's just pull back a little bit. I'm cheating a little bit. There's a couple of things, but there's no, like, book, book on the horizon. So what does the space of of no projects feel like? It's fucking terrifying. Like, I have to just <laughs> exist as a human. <laughs> I'm just yeah. not great at that, you know? Like, I mean, because you've, yeah. you've written in a, a many places about how writing is, like, an essential, almost, like, survival act of dissociation yeah. when you need it. Yeah. And yeah. obviously, I'm, it sounds like you're still writing, but to be writing without the the horizon point of a of a project must be yeah. New. I'm just just thinking this through as I say, but the, the writing sort of starts pretty much with the first thing I look for at the rave is like who needs it, you know? Like um, there, there are people you meet at the party who are sort of passing through, and that's fine. Mm-hmm. But I'm sort of drawn to the personalities that like need it, need like they to, need, need to do this to their body, mm-hmm. yeah. And and where managing that actually becomes the problem. Uh, but I'm sort of thinking maybe how I feel about writers too. You're like, who needs it? You know, in the writers that I know, I'm not going to name names. Mm-hmm. But it's like some of you bitches could be doing something else. You really could, you know, like. <laughs> and if you're looking for you know like glamour or money or fame, you pick the wrong lane. You know, <laughs> right. right. It but, sounds like but, you boys identified as as somebody who needs it. Yeah, yeah, and 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 a lot most writers. Yeah, it's sort of like you have to do it. Right. It's it's a thing that um, is sustaining the possibility of the rest of your being, you know? Yeah. Thresholds is produced by Jordan Kistner and Drew Broussard. Music and editing by Laura Faye Oshavud of Arthur Moon. Our art is by Lorelai Grossman. Sign up for our newsletter, listen to past episodes, and get in touch at our website, thisistthresholds.com. Don't forget to rate and review our show at Apple Podcasts. It really helps. Thanks. We'll see you soon. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. 
Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.